So last week I've got somebody asking me if I can uh, chat about my detailed plans for this year's travels and talk about stops and overnights and what we're going to do and backup plans and all this sort of stuff. And this question to me, that implies the type of planning that Elizabeth and I just do not do. When we travel, we generally have a destination in mind, you know, if we have any times that we have to be somewhere or dates that we have to be somewhere, that's fine. We make note of that. But otherwise, it's very loose. We'll often decide on going somewhere and partway through we'll get sidetracked on something else, maybe spend too much time in one spot and totally get rid of a whole section that we planned on doing. And it doesn't bother us at all. It, that's just the way we move, the way we travel. And as for stops, the sites we see, well, that's all a bit of a crapshoot. Where we're going to stay totally, you know, just depends on everything, weather, where we are, what we feel like, where we're moving, all that sort of thing. I, I mean, we have to work on the road, but other than that, we don't really have to be anywhere at any time, usually. So why make ourselves adhere to some sort of schedule just so that, you know, we cover off everything and dot all our I's and cross our T's with all of our sites that we want to see. Now, in our minds, a schedule would only add stress to what otherwise turns out to be a great adventure. Anyway, while we're talking about this, it got me thinking about an episode we did back in 2015 with a guy named Ian Coates. The episode was called Ian Coates, No Map, No Plan, No Worries. I mean, I think the title really says it. And Ian has a sort of an interesting approach to travel. Well, actually, that might be a complete understatement. But his story gets you asking some questions about the way you see things, um, the way you travel. I mean, just life questions, I think, uh, in, in some ways, in a lot of ways. So we decided to write Ian's story again, only a slightly different version than before. But after Ian, we're going to talk with Roseanne and Jonathan Hansen from Overland Expo. They're authors, writers, and extremely passionate travels. They, they've got a, a great story. So let's have at it. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com.
Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Okay, it starts off with Ian Coates taking a job to drive a Land Rover with a bunch of tourists in it up Africa and back to the UK for a guy he doesn't know. Then the trip ends up getting scuttled because they can't get visas to complete the journey. So they return, but Ian gets his wife to ship his motorcycle down to South Africa so he can ride it home. Then he gets sidetracked and doesn't make it home for... 14 years. Now, it's okay if you got lost in that. Let's take it one step at a time. Here's Ian Coates. Hailing from Hebden Bridge in the UK, Ian Coates is here to talk about his 14 plus years of adventure, over 400,000 kilometers on his 1991 Honda Africa Twin. Ian, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Ian, Tell us how the whole motorcycle thing got started for you. When did you start riding your bike? The, the bike I went on my trip on. Uh, I mean, originally, like, what, what, you know, when well, did you become a motorcyclist? Oh, uh, when I was 12 year old, uh, me and my friends bought an old uh, uh, BSA and uh, we rigged it up like a, a scrambler. I went in around his fields. He has a farm. And uh, that's how it started. And then I got my own bike when I was 16 and uh, started riding then because in them days, we're apprentice mechanic, we didn't have much money. And uh, that's all the thing you could afford were a motorbike. So I had a motorbike till I were about 20 before I got a car. Although I passed my test for a car when I was 17 because I needed a license for work. But I only got a car when I were uh, 20, but I still had a motorbike all the time. So somewhere not too long after that, you managed to get your own shop going, your own garage. Yeah. Uh, when I was, I think, about 22, uh, I started my own uh, business up with uh, uh, another lad uh, who used to work with me. We both started it up. And then uh, after a few years, he pulled out because he wanted, he, he wanted to do farming. He had a farm as well. 
I wanted to farm in all the time, so I just carried on by myself working. And somewhere along the line, you came up to a point in your garage where you decided to go for a ride. Well, uh, I had a phone call one day off a mechanic who used to work for me, and uh, he said that he should be going to Africa as a mechanic and driver fetching a Land Rover back uh, to England, a four-month trip. He said, but at last minute, his wife's put her foot down and won't let him go. And he said, it sounds like a job for you, Ian, because he knows what I'm like. So he gave me a phone number. He says, ring this chap up. So I rang this man up, and he said, oh, yes, that's all right. So uh, I flew out to uh, Johannesburg, met him there. Uh, there was the owner who was supposed to be the guide and tell everything about the wild animals. And then his friend was going to do all the cooking and the food and do the paperwork for the visas. And there was some uh, passengers as well. Now, this Land Rover was an ex-army 101 Land Rover and uh, pulling a, a Sankey trailer. We're all camping here. In. Okay, hang on, hang on one second here, because no matter how easy you think that segue was, we went from somebody who owns a garage and, and, and goes to work every day to someone who just takes this this thing that's offered to them where you're just going to fill in for somebody on this adventure driving a, a Land Rover 101 up through Africa back to England. Where, where does that come from? Were you an adventurer before this? Well, no, uh, I do anything, you know, and uh, I, I do out, you know, anything that's a bit out of ordinary, I'll do it. So that's why Alan, who was, should have been doing it, the mechanic who used to work for me, but had to back out when his wife wouldn't let him go, thought, oh, it's just a job for Ian, is that? So, so, so what, what kind of things? Give us an example. Like, I mean, so I, I, you had the garage like 30 some odd years or something like that it, before you decided to do this. Give me an example of some of the, the different things that you would do. Well, I go riding horses, uh, I go motorbiking, uh, do a lot of Land Rover work. Um, do oh, any old thing that sound uh, out of ordinary. Uh, I go, I hired a yacht uh, in the Mediterranean and with family, but uh, I'd never been on a yacht before. I went sailing. I, I learned how to sail when I got out to sea and put sails up. But out a bit strange, I do. So, so you've always had that little bit in you where you always want to go off and do these wild and crazy things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not boring at all. <laughs> and, and when you've done these other things, like when you went to work on the yacht or, or, or help on the yacht, did your wife go with you or did she just say, oh, that's fine, you go ahead and I'll keep things going here? Oh, no, I hired a yacht in Greece for me and family. Oh, I see, you're living on it. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh. I've never been on a yacht before. And uh, I had to watch people set off from Arbor and then I did. I went out on engine and then I, I put sails up when I got out. And I thought, I roughly what to do. But it's, I mean, Mediterranean is all like a big dam. So it's not so bad. So, okay. So, so you're a little wild and quick to jump at anything that looks like adventure. But has your, has your wife been the type that that's, she's fine with you going off and doing things on your own before the motorcycle thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's all, she's all right. But she was with me on a boat job and, and my children. But no, she's all right because she's got grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you know, and uh, she'd rather stop at home with them. Okay, so 
your wife stays at home while you go down here to get this Land Rover. And really, this is the catalyst that that makes Ian Coates the motorcycle adventure, at least for this stage of your life anyway. So what happened? You arrive there, you, you meet the owner, you meet the crew, everything looks great. The guy's got this business set up where he's going to take the tourists out. Um, what happens next? Well, uh, when I got there, the Land Rover wasn't ready. Uh, and the tourists got there from England about a week later. And the trip was from Johannesburg back to England. So I had to get it ready. So I got it ready and then they came out and then we set off from Johannesburg up to England. Now then, I was sat in back. The owner was driving it and he's a man who tells all about wild animals and his friend sat next to him who was doing the visas and food. And after about 10 days, them two had an argument so the, the owner's friend, he left. So it meant I could get out at back and sit next to the driver. So I sat next to him. And then, so the driver, the owner, did the food and stuff. Then about 10 days after that, the owner fell out with the passengers. And uh, <laughs> he gave me $1,500. He says, you take it back. Now, he'd never seen me drive it and passengers hadn't. So I said, well, which way do I go? So he got a, a lump of paper and drew a map of Africa and said, oh, go that way. He said, all right, then. So, Well, hang on. This is crazy. I mean, th- these passengers, these paying passengers that paid for this trip sound like they're being treated like, like cattle. <laughs> they're, just, well, they're just waiting for yeah, the, well, the new driver to jump in and take them. Yeah, it was boring when, when he was driving. Uh, so, so when I got all drive, it, it was like a mystery trip for them. So we set off and uh, I had to uh, do everything. But after the first meal, they realized I was no good at cooking. So one of them <laughs> took over that job. Uh, and we, we, we did all, all right going up. But when we got to Kenya, we couldn't get visa for Ethiopia or Sudan. So I rang the owner up in England and I says, uh, I can't get the visas uh, for Ethiopia or Sudan for myself or the people. He said, all right, then you'll have to turn around and go back to Johannesburg and they'll have to uh, fly home. So I told the people and they're a bit disappointed, but they said, which way are you going back? I says, well, I don't know, but we'll, we'll find Johannesburg. So I zigzagged across Africa on the way back. And uh, on my way back, I'm thinking, I'm not going to uh, fly home. I'll get wife to send me uh, under Africa twin out. I'm going to ride past these lot. I'm sure I can get through. I'll have a go anyway. So when we got back to Johannesburg, I rung my wife up and she uh, sent me Africa Twin to uh, to Johannesburg. Other people flew back. So uh, when I got my bike, I went down to the most southernest point in Africa. So hang on, this is the point where you where you turns into the motorcycle adventure. Clearly, um, yes, and and it's it's open ended. What's who's running your business? How are you getting by? My son's there, and my wife's there in office, and uh, and she's uh, after a, like, a month or two, she says, "Well, what about the garage?" I said, "If I ever got, you know, got killed tomorrow, you and Jason have it, wouldn't you?" She says, "Yes." Well, carry on then. You know, I, I, I'm 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 riding back home, so so that were it. So I just carted on, and I went down to the bottom of uh, South Africa to uh, Cape Town, 
and then I went on the garden route uh, across the bottom into Swaziland, and had a look round Swaziland, then into Mozambique, a bit round here. Then I turned round and come back into um, uh, into Botswana, and then across to Namibia, other side, then up there. And I tried to go into Angola, but they were having a fight up there. So I came out of Angola, then came across Capibi uh, uh, Strip. No, it was... Anyway, I came across into Zimbabwe, and then I went up Zambia, come back down Zambia, and then back into Zimbabwe, and then into Zambia, yeah, Zambia, and then into Malawi, Where it? I'm getting all mixed up. Oh, then Tanzania. I went to Tanzania, and then I went to Zanzibar. I saw a ferry going out, and I, I do this. When I see a ferry, I get on it. I don't know where it goes to, but I thought I'll get on it. And it finished up at Zanzibar. And then I came across where uh, Freddie Mercury were born in Zanzibar. So I had a look around Zanzibar, then back into uh, Kenya, and then I went into onto Uganda, and then I parked my bike up, and I, well, got a canoe, and they went on uh, uh, Lake Victoria and spent a bit of time on an island at the middle of Lake, Lake Victoria, then came back, uh, and then I thought, I wonder if I can get into uh, Sudan at bottom, but they won't let me in there. So I went then back into Kenya, and then I got into Uganda, no, I got into Ethiopia, Mandelton. Blagged me way into Ethiopia. So in Ethiopia, and then uh, I wanted a visa for Sudan. Anyway, uh, I got one after a bit, uh, a visa for Sudan. And, uh, and then I, I set off and uh, I got stopped at first military uh, post in Sudan, only to find out that I hadn't... Uh, a transit visa for a motorbike. I had only a visa for myself. So I had to come back, and it's a long story, but then I sneaked in, and then I, I finished up in Egypt, and then I got robbed in Egypt, in, in Alexandra. Then I had enough brass to get a, a ferry to Cyprus, where I got some money from uh, sent to me to Cyprus. Then I got another ferry to uh, Greece, and then I got to Italy, and then I could ride back home there, uh, back, uh, back to Ebden Bridge. And that just took me a year. I was like a few few months late. And then when I got home, wife wasn't right suited. Uh, she uh, she you know she said, "Oh, that that mail's for you on there as well." So third and I opened. It was from BSA Owners Club, and they were running a trip to Australia. And it was very cheap. And uh, I thought, hell, I wonder if they've set off. So I rang them up and I said, have you set off to Australia yet, you lads? And they said, oh, no, no, everything, all bikes have been in a container next Wednesday. So I took it down to Southampton on Monday and put it uh, in container. And then I flew out uh, to Melbourne and uh, picked my bike up. This is another trip now. So you, you got yeah. home in what you describe as a, a few months late, but but I got news for you, Ian, like four months to a year that's more than a few months late. But we'll just let that go anyway at this point. So how how soon after you arrived home, just a few months late, did you depart on this next trip? I don't think it were many months before I shut off <laughs> because I think I serviced my bike. Uh, I did some jobs on it before I, I sent it. 
Mm-hmm. And everything has to be right. Anything you go to Australia, it has to be cleaner than new for insects and stuff. So you had to completely strip it down and clean it, everything off. I mean, I had a lot of insects in. I had half a bloody Saddam Desert stuck under the fairing. Um, so I had to clean everything off. And you end up in Australia. And, and how long do you spend in Australia? Well, well, I landed in Melbourne. And as I say, I don't have maps or GPS or all that. Uh, or what I do, I have a little diary. It's about three inch. And if you're on back page, Map at World comes on. I get all get diaries like that. So that does for me. So I landed at Melbourne and uh, I thought they thought they were going for like two month trip. I don't know how long I thought wife were going for. Well, she knew not to inspect me back in Dumo. And uh, I thought, well, it's only an island. I'll keep water on left hand side. So I carried did on every peninsula went up and down till I got right at top, uh, halfway across on top of on near water, then I dropped straight down to Burralulu, down to, to Alice Springs in nine weeks in Simpson Desert, all the way around Birdsville and down to Cooper Pedy and a, then across uh, the other side and then up to Ayers Rock and back up to where I set off from, then across on top and then across to uh, Cairns, then right up to the top of uh, Cape York and then made my way down back to Melbourne. Well, that took me 11 months, and I had a month left. So I went to Tasmania and did Tasmania. Then there was another island I saw, and post office boat were going, so I put my bike on post office mail boat and went to North and South Bruny Island. Not many people know it's there. Uh, and then I came back to Australia, and that was just a year. And I thought, well, seeing as I'm down bottom at World, I'll go to New Zealand. So I went to New Zealand from there. You said you only had a, a month left. You were talking about your visa for being in Australia, but you, yeah. you told your wife you're only going to be a couple of months. In the end, you know, after, you know, we'll get to the rest of this trip, but in the end, how long were you gone for in total? Well, that were a year. It took me a year. And then from there, I went to New Zealand. I didn't go home. I went down to New Zealand because it's just off the bottom of Australia. That's what I mean. But in total, by the time you came home the next time, how how long was that? 2013. Wasn't that the 14 years later? Yeah. Ian, that doesn't strike you as, as a little late? Like a lot late? Well, no, because no, I mean, cause my wife comes out to look at me. Oh, that makes it okay then. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I, see, I saw her seven times in 14 years. And I spoke to her on telephone. Now, you also sort of alluded to the, the map thing. Um, I know you've got a, a, this bit of a thing. You don't get a map when you go into a country, do you? No, no. I get one when I go out, and then I can put in where I've been and send it back home. Is that part of the adventure? It's, it's the thrill of just finding your way? Yeah, I'm the clue. Well, it, I've no stress. If you don't know where you're going, you can't get lost. Wow, and, that's, uh, that's absolutely uh, true. I've never thought about that before. <laughs> and... Uh, I just put my tent up when it comes dark and get up when it comes light and eat when I'm hungry and drink when I'm thirsty. And you're camping most of the time? All the time, yeah. But only in the in the countryside at wilderness. I don't go in cities or big towns. They do me head in. I can't do them. So you, you, you were um, in New Zealand at this point. Where did you go from there? Uh, from New Zealand? Argentina. Because I had it in my little head. If I went to Argentina, I could ride up to the top 
Alaska, get across that lump of land to uh, Russia and ride back home, which my more or less did that. And you, so you go to Argentina, you land in Buenos Aires? Yes, Buenos Aires in, in 2000, yeah, two, oh, hang on, 2003. 2003, I got to Argentina and they have the winter in summer. They have, they have the winter in July. And so I get there in July and start going down to the bottom of Shuaia. Uh, it was fairly cold. And where I live in the Black Shoehead, it's fairly cold up there. In, in, up in top of Pennines and lots of snow. So I were all right. I'd rather have it a bit cold than, than Sudan Desert. So I rode right at the bottom, a place called Ushuaia, and put my front wheel in water. No more land left. I thought, right, all I'll do is turn around and go to the other end, top of Alaska. And that was 2003. And so in 2009, nine, six years later, I put my front wheel in top of water, right at top of Dead Horse at Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. So it only took me six years to get up. That's a long time. A lot of people are doing that trip in a, in a lot shorter uh, time span. Yeah, but they don't see out. No, I'm sure. As, as you're going yeah. through, so how do you figure out where you're going? Let's say, you're, you know, as you went up South America, how do you determine yeah. your route? Well, I just had to get to Alaska. Any, anywhere. So do you stop and ask people, you know, hey, point me to... Oh, no, no. Well, sometimes I do, but uh, they always tell you wrong anyway. So uh, I just, uh, I had this little diary, you see, so I know what country's next normally. Um, and uh, I'll just quickly tell you what countries I went through and then I'll come back to where I am. Okay. So Argentina, these are countries I got lost in. Well, not lost, I just wandered around. Argentina... Chile, Uruguay, Brazil, Paraguay, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, Trinidad and Tobago, Panama, Costa Rica, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Belize, Mexico, USA, Canada, Vancouver Island, Alaska, and that's it. That took six years to get up there. Well, that just about covers everything, doesn't it? I mean, there's only a few you missed. Well, yeah, but it, it gets better. I've got to carry on. Go ahead. Right. Well, when I was in Venezuela, I got, uh, I saw a, a bloke. I said, does anybody speak English around here? Because I've been, I, don't, I only speak English and not that right well. And they said, oh, hi, Trade and Tobago. It's English over there. I said, well, where's that? So they, uh, they told me. Anyway, I finished up. Uh, giving uh, captain of an oil rig supply boat, I think 100 US, to drop me off in Trinidad. So, which he did do, everything was legal. But only thing is, there was no boats leaving. And uh, so I'm stuck on Trinidad and Tobago. My wife even came out uh, to look at me there. And uh, an engineer, uh, a shipping agent knew I was trying to get a, a boat to drop me off in Panama so I could carry up to Alaska. And... Uh, he got in touch with me and said, well, there's a, a, a ship here from Grimsby. It's a, an ex-Grimsby Icelandic fishing boat that they've spent 15 years converting it to a three-masted tall ship. It's 150 foot long and 450 ton, but they've no engineer to get them through Panama Canal. And uh, I said, well, that'll do for me. 
So I went down to see them and uh, I looked at engine room and I said, ah, yeah, I can mend out there is on here. I can get you through canal with this. So I put my motorbike on and of course, they just all they've been doing uh, for 15 years, converting into a sailing ship, doing note down at engine room. So when I got through, got them through Panama Canal, uh, the owner and his wife were on. They said, uh, we'd like you to stay on to New Zealand. I said, nay, I told you, I left there like four years ago. I'm on my way up to Alaska. They said, well, we're going to spend seven months visiting all the islands in the Pacific. I said, all right, now I'll go back to New Zealand. He said, well, don't you want to think about this? I said, I've just thought about it, right? I'll go back. So then uh, we, we set off to um, to New Zealand. And these are countries I went to, well, from Pan from. Trinidad, we, uh, we stopped at Dunchin and Telly's. Uh, my bike's on, but I couldn't get it off because it was too big to park up next to Key. And then we did Galapagos Islands. When I'm in these islands, I always make contact with somebody with a bike. And then they Google my name and know I'm all right and let me have a do on a bike. And then after Galapagos, I went to Tahiti. And then Bora Bora. Then Eva Hova. And then Tonga. And then most of the French Polynesian islands we went round. Then the last one were Fiji, and then back to uh, New Zealand. Then when I got back to New Zealand, I went to Auckland, and all lads said, "Hey, you should be in Alaska now." I said, "I ah, just a little bit of a nick up. Uh, where can I find a boat to drop me off in uh, Panama?" Anyway, they found a container for me and put me bike in, and I shipped it back to Panama, where I should have got off boat when I got on it. it uh, in Trinidad, then I flew out there, then carried on up, up to a, up to Alaska. Wow, this is this is really the adventure of a lifetime for a lot of people. You're seeing just amazing parts of the world and in depth, and and also with an open itinerary. That's the real way to travel, isn't it? Oh yeah, no stress at all. Just just go wherever I want. Just do out. You know, there a bit of stress on boat. I had to come back to boat every other night. Uh, or they just, well, they couldn't set off about me because they couldn't start the damn thing. Uh, so they wouldn't leave. But uh, that were only only bit, but it were eight. It, uh, all these islands just wandered around and met people. Uh, this boat, people on this boat were a bit like me. They hadn't a really clue where they were going. So uh, it were all right for me. What do you think the key is to traveling the way you travel? Is it, I mean, obviously you got to have a little bit of money you can draw from to do this, but but what's the key for your style of travel? Uh, smile all the time when everything's going bad. Smile because you're, you're living, you aren't dead. So smile. There's lots of people who underground wish they could have snags that you were having. So all the time, I just smile all the time with everybody. And I don't worry about anything. Not a damn thing. I got a bit concerned in Sudan Desert. I thought that were it. I thought, I'm going to dig and I've got some petrol left in. But uh, that's it. Just just wander off. Meet, meet people. In, in every country in the world, if you get out to big cities and, and uh, big towns, the, the country people in the wilderness are all right. No trouble at all. Life is very stressful for a lot of us. I mean, you know, day-to-day life is, is just um, somewhat grinding and, and things pop up and you can get easily stressed about them. It seems that you've got a bit of an easygoing demeanor. Maybe it doesn't hit you quite as hard, but clearly you can't do a trip like this and have things go wrong. And you must have had a lot of things go wrong. Uh, I don't think so, no. <laughs> 
That's amazing. See, again, it makes you wonder if it's if it's attitude, it's your approach. Because I mean, well, no, I, got a, I mean, in uh, I think Sudan, I got AK forty seven under my chin. Uh, bloke were trying to rob me, but uh, after I tried to swap my motocross boots, which were knackered, every time I put them on, I had to put duct tape round to, to fasten them, and he had some uh, sandals on that were look very cool, and I tried to swap my boots for his sandals. Uh, when they were trying to like stick me up for some money, but after a bit, he, he realised he, he were on a loser and just looked, said, "Go, just let me go." Wow! But I, I smiled all the time. He might have thought I were a nutter, but uh, I don't let out worry me. But you're quick to embrace things that are sort of outside of your your area too. I mean, like to go and work on the ship as an engineer. That's not. I mean, I know you're a mechanic and and, and likely a very good one. But it, a ship is not something you've you've been. Uh, I guess you did have a little bit of experience, but it's it's certainly not your vocation. And and you just quickly snap it up and say, "Yeah, I can do that." Oh yeah, I mean I I, I do that. I mean, uh, in Argentina and Brazil, I was doing gauchoing. You know, gaucho is like a South American cowboy. Mm. And I would do it in Australia as well. Uh, and uh, rounding cows up and branding them and, and uh, saying to them and stuff like that. So you just go through in any country and you just sort of bump into people and meet people and make friends and hang out? Yeah, meet, meet people all the time. Hit wilderness, just look at the cows or horses and, and I just... You see, my mother worked in the mill as a weaver and uh, it, it was so loud... You couldn't hear people talk, so they use their hands a lot and pointed and, and gesture. So that's what I do, automatically looking after my mother. But I just pointed all the time, and I could get through all right with just pointing. How many miles have you ridden on your adventures now? Uh, about 250,000 this trip, uh, you know, since 99. And it's the same bike. I know I asked you that already. Yeah, yeah. oh, it's the same bike, it's right. And you, you plan to keep this bike? Oh yeah, I know. Uh, someday they'll make they want to make a film on me, so I'm leaving this bike at home just as I got back. Uh, it's exactly the same. I went out to uh, a charity uh, bike meeting last other week for the raising money for a bike club. Uh, so I went, took it out. Oh, I went to Alaman TT with. I was racing around there for three weeks in uh, June. Nice. Uh, but I won't take it with me. Um, but next trip in case all happens, I got another bike ready, and uh, I got that stolen out of my barn uh, last year. Uh, so that's another story how I got that stolen. So a I, 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 I lad's give me another bike, another Africa twin, and I'm getting that ready for next April because I have to set off in April because by the time I get to Kazakhstan and Mongolia, uh, winter will be setting in. Well, we'll get to that, uh, your next trip here in a few minutes. But so to finish up this one, you, you know, you went up through South America, you did your boat trip, you came back to Panama, and then where did you go? Uh, up, up to Alaska. And then uh, I got told uh, that um, Aeroflot uh, fly from uh, Fairbanks to Magaden. So I went down to Fairbanks from Alaska, uh, at top of Alaska, Prudhoe Bay, and after three days, I couldn't find this damn uh, office of Aeroflot. So I asked, I found out that they'd finished three years before f- flying out. They don't do it anymore. <laughs> and now it's coming winter. I'm thinking, bloody hell, I'm leaving this a bit late to go to uh, Russia. So I made my way down to uh, Vancouver, 
And then I got on ferry for a few days uh, to Vancouver Island. But I finished up a month there. God, it is a big place. And a right good do I had around Vancouver Island. I've a lot of friends there. Uh, Did you just explore on Vancouver Island? You're just riding all over the place? All over. Everywhere. And uh, everywhere. Met people all over. Beautiful island. And then I didn't come back to uh, uh, Vancouver. There were another ferry setting off to somewhere else. Anyway, I get on this here ferry and I didn't know. Anyway, it finished up, I finished up in America. Good job I had my passport with me because I, I thought I didn't know where it was going. So I rode around there for a while. And uh, then I made my way back into Seattle, I think, and then back into Vancouver. Uh, and then I, I stopped winter up in uh, Banff and, and Canmore, uh, getting my bike ready for the spring to send it to uh, Russia, Vladivostok. Banff and Canmore are both uh, ski places, and in the wintertime they're locked up with snow and ice, so you just stayed with friends or...? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know some friends up there who I met, bikers, who, who, who knew about me. And I stopped with one, uh, a, a lad called uh, Neville, uh, and another one called Doug. Neville's at Canmore, uh, Doug at, uh, uh, at Jasper, aye. Some more at Brad Creek as well. So I was all right. And then uh, I took it to uh, Seattle and shipped it to Vladivostok. At April, and then uh, I flew out to Vladivostok in April, and I thought, hell, this is a cold oil. Bloody hell. Anyway, we're all right. Got my bike, and of course, I'm going north then, and everybody thought I were alone uh, because it was snowing, and uh, I finished up. It were all right. And then I made my way across Russia. Then I saw a signpost. I knew where it were because I used to ask people where uh, Moscow were. And they used to point which way Moscow was, so I didn't need my map, my diary. So, but I was going up this here road, and I saw signposts for China. I didn't know I was near China. So after about six hours, I finished up at border with China. But they wanted a lot of paperwork, which I, don't, I didn't have, and I don't bother with. And uh, so they wouldn't let me in. And I said, well, it's all right, don't worry. So I turned around and went back into, well, I was still in Russia, actually. And then made my way across and went to uh, Mongolia. I, I knew where Mongolia, because somebody in Cheetah told me where Mongolia was. So I went down. They wouldn't let me in, because they had six months on the passport. I said, well, it's all right, lad, I'll come back. So it goes on, and then I'm lost. And then I come across this damn big boat, and I thought, oh, I'm overshot. I'm at sea. I thought I were at coast. And I thought, but I'll get on it and see where it goes. So I got on this boat. And uh, finished up an island, and it was Lake Baikal I were on. And this big island on Lake Baikal, and I stopped on there for about, I don't know how long I'd be on there. A fair while, anyway. With uh, Mr. Bike? Yeah. And then uh, I came back, and then made my way across Russia to Kazakhstan. They won't let me in there. So then it were all right. I just carted on and finished up back in, uh, in Ukraine at Sevastopol. So there were... Russia, then Ukraine, and then I went to Moldova, and then I went into Romania, and then Bulgaria. Oh, and it was it was winter. I, did, I thought Black Sea were like uh, like a, a sunshine place, but it was covered in ice and snow, and uh, beach were full of uh, snow. And I got snowed in in uh, Bulgaria, 
But I didn't mind. It was all right. And then from Bulgaria, I went into Turkey, and then Greece, then Albania, and then Montenegro, and then Macedonia, and Kosovo, and Serbia, and Bosnia, and Herzegovina. Now, then, when I were in Bosnia and Herzegovina, I came across a bridge, and there's a plaque there that this was built by the Canadian army at Mar- it was a little village called Martinborough. And the Canadian army built this bridge in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So uh, I carried on then, and then on this little road, I used to see uh, red notices on trees. I thought out about it. Anyway, I'm riding on, I wanted a pee. So I went into wood for a pee, and then I always looked to see if there's any animals about. So I'm wandering up and down this wood, and I came out onto Little Road, about 100 yards further up from where my bike were. And there were one of these signs on a tree. So I looked at it, and it's bloody landmines. It's warning for landmines. I thought, bloody hell, I just walked all up there. And I thought, I know, this got me worried, Jim. And I had about, oh, 30 foot to get onto Gravel Road. And I thought, I, thought I didn't know where to walk. And uh, it was a while, I was sweating like hell. But anyway, I managed to get back onto the road, but that were in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And then where? Yeah, I went across Croatia, Hungary, Slovenia, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Poland, Austria, Italy, even. And then I went down to Sicily. When I were in, uh, where were I? Uh, well, when I were in Czech Republic, uh, what I were doing in Czech Republic, a bloke, contacted me, an Englishman who lived in Czech Republic and has a, a knackered old uh, double-decker London bus that they were going to provide free for the deaf and dumb people and Apple was going to show them iPads. But he didn't trust this old bus to go around uh, Czech Republic and asked me if I'd go. I never met him, but he, he knows all about me. That's mechanic. So I went over to Czech Republic and many of this knackered old uh, bus kept it going. And after, like, second uh, time, this is marvellous, is this, Jim, if you just concentrate on this. After second place where we went to, it should have been three weeks, um, the man who was organising it uh, could speak perfect English, but it was from a Czech Republic, and his wife was deaf and dumb. So this man, this Czech Republic man, could do the hand signals, but speak English perfect. So it was telling people about me and my motorbike and stuff like that. So after that, everybody were asking this man about me. And it was marvellous because they were asking this man with hand signals about me. And then he was reading what they were saying with hand signals and asking me in English. And I was replying back to him in English what the question was and answered him. And then he'd do it with hand signals back to these people. And it, it was marvellous because they were asking if I were married, how many children I had and how old I were and everything. And I thought, well, that's marvellous. These deaf and dumb people can ask someday instantly and I can answer them. And instead of three weeks, it went fit, finished up six weeks because I didn't mind. We're going to little children, uh, junior schools, senior schools, universities, uh, deaf and dumb clubs. And they're all right suited because, in fact, they're more suited to me than damn Apple bloody iPad. Uh, to ask me questions, you know, about everything. But whilst I was there, I had an email from a bloke in uh, Sicily. 
So he said, will you come to visit us, you know, on your trip? I said, ah, of course I will. Just send me your address. So he sent me this address. And so I said to this English bloke in the Czech Republic who owned the bus, I said, I've got to go to Italy. Which way is it best to get to Italy? And he said, oh, well, you know, you just come through it down there. I said, why, this town called Sicily, where is it? He says, oh, it's in the town. It's an island off the bottom of Sicily. I said, oh, right at bottom? He said, aye. I said, well, that's all right. I can't get lost as long as I go to the bottom. So I went right at the bottom of Italy, got ferry to Sicily, and they were right suited to see me there. And I went round Sicily. That was winter as well. I got snowed in a bit on way back up. When I was there, I got another email from a lad in Madrid. He said, will you come to visit us? We understand you've visited people in Sicily. I said, of course I will. Just tell me where you live. So he told me that. But I was snowed in at the time. Anyway, they said, uh, lad says, well, you can't ride round. Go down to Genoa and get a ferry across to Barcelona. So I did do. So I went down to Genoa and got ferry to Barcelona, then went up to Madrid, and then this lad went for a ride round with me. We went round, round Spain and Portugal, and then he went back home, and I carried on uh, to... Uh, where did I go there? Spain, Portugal. Oh, aye. Switzerland. Oh, France, Switzerland, Germany... Luxembourg, this is winter, snowing like hell. Then Holland, and then Belgium, and then home. How are you riding around through the snow on your bike? Because I get used to it. Where I live is right wild. Yeah, are you running with studs in your tires? No, no, just right. You just slide up and down. It's right. Because when I was a young lad, we used to ride on old English bikes in winter. We can't afford cars, so we drove all, all year. So it makes the difference. You know, it's just right. None of the police stop you along the way wondering what you're doing riding your motorcycle through the snow? They got a bit cat. They won't let me. I was riding at about minus... I was going up about 25 minus 30 from Vancouver up to Jasper in winter. And uh, they won't let me go over Big Hill, Big Mountain somewhere. They said, no, you can't. It's too bad. I said, go on, let me go. Anyway, they won't. Anyway, a woman came with a, a pickup and a Put my bike in a pickup. I put my bike up. No, a bloke, and that's it. A bloke had, had given me a lift from Vancouver in his pickup because it was winter and dropped me off in. Uh, I forgot all my notes. Anyway, forgot dropped me off in uh, somewhere in Canada, way over Rockies, and dropped me off there. And then I rode from there and then going over at Rockies. That's when they wouldn't let me go over. Anyway, the woman come. And you let her go in a pickup. And uh, I said, Well, I asked her if I could put my bike back with a pickup to go over. She said, Yes. So all these lads at Frontier and some more put my bike back and we went over. And she, I think she dropped me off at Jasper or somewhere like that. Then I rode down to uh, uh, Canmore. And then where's the other place? Brad Creek. Brad Creek. And, uh, and that's when you ended up spending the winter there. Winter there, yeah. There and, and at, at Brad Creek and also at Canmore with, with Neville Stowe. Stowe mm-hmm. is an English lad who's lived there a late long time. Neville, in fact, Neville, but for Neville, I'd still be in Canada trying to get a visa for uh, Russia because I had a clue how to do it. Oh, oh, he helped you sort that out? He did it. 
I, I'd have still been in damn Canmore now. These little sections that you're just skipping over are complete trips for most people. I mean, a full-on complete trip, and you've buzzed around all over the place. 14 years now um, that you that you spent on, on that particular trip, clearly in my mind, and I know if I was to ask my wife this, she would say, yes, you are absolutely late. There, <laughs> there's, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> well, we're late, yeah. But you see, when I was young, I worked all the time. I never had no time off. Uh, started delivering papers when I was 13 because I was big, I could get a paper around. And then I started being an apprentice mechanic and working and working and working. But I enjoyed it. And I thought, someday I'll want to have a ride on my bike. And then when I set off, I thought, well, I'll just carry on. Because once you, I were a, a, a late, and I thought, well, I'll just keep going. Because if you're late, you're late. It's like if someone just misses a summit, you miss it. Don't matter if you miss it with eighth of an inch or miss it with a mile, you've bloody missed it. And if you're late, you're late. I used to talk to wife. And where I live, it's right, it's up in hills and clouds always down. It's always raining and blowing and snowing. And she'll say, uh, where are you now? And I, like when I'm in Trinidad, she says, where are you? Oh, she says, is it fine where you are? I said, aye, sun's out. She says, all right, I'm coming. I said, right, lass. She says, where are you? I said, I'm in Trinidad. She said, right. So she goes down to travel agents and books a return ticket to Trinidad. She had a clue where it is. But uh, she got there. She, I mean, she's been out all over. She's been to New Zealand, been been to Brazil, Ecuador, uh, all over the shop. You've been back now for uh, a year and a bit, I guess. Yeah, nearly, yeah. Well, yeah, nearly two years. Nearly I should two think. years, and you're you're already set to head off again. Yeah, well, I fit like fourteen years of maintenance to do on my farm buildings and house. I'm doing that. Just putting a new roof on one of barns. How old are you now? Oh, well, uh, 72. 72. And you're about to head yeah. off at 72 on your next adventure. And how long is your next adventure and where are you going? Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it'll be long. A few years. But uh, I don't think it'll be too long. Because, uh, uh, well, I've lots to do at home yet. I've got a lot of stuff to do. My wife used to fetch me, bring me spares out as well. She's fetched me. I fell out, I got knocked off my bike second day in Mexico, out of Burleese, I got knocked off. And I rode it f- from uh, Mexico up into Mississippi, right up there, with all front end twisted. Uh, and I was, I was too late, two weeks late when I got knocked off damn bike. So about three weeks late when I got back up to Mississippi, where my wife was. But she were all right, because I'd notified the lads, the family where she was stopping, they were bikers, that I'd had a bit of an accident. and But don't tell wife, I'm late. And when I come back up, front end's twisted. So uh, we started straightening it up. And then I pay for everything myself. I don't get no sponsors and out. So my wife, no, my daughter came out with some parts for me, uh, front end. So I put all them back together, and then that were it. I was going to ask you about the sponsorship thing. I didn't think you had sponsors. Do you, you just not bother with them? No, no, I, I just just do it. I'm time to beg, beggar about with them. I just do it, you know. Uh, I, I just have it to do. A, a bloke, I forgot his name now, in Can, Neville were right good in Canmore. There's another bloke, ex-English Bobby. All, I say all my damn notes, I'm forgetting them at home. He bought me a new pair of motocross boots. Wow. Uh, as I say, they kept, I, I, they were all duct taped up. I had the same boots on that I had in Africa. 
and uh, he gave me uh, a new pair of motocross boots, and and that's it. There's a bloke in Brazil, he gave me a new back tyre, and stuff like that, you know. But I don't go begging and asking for them, you know, but I keep in touch with them. Has it been expensive for you to travel around? Well, no, because I... I, I I eat out. If there's any roadkill, it's all right. I'll, I'll have it. Uh, and I'll eat anything. I normally eat beans, sardines. Um, what's right good is bananas and peanut butter. I mean, Elvis could sing like hell off that, and that's what he liked. Uh, so I have. I always have bread around, bits of bread, and if it gets a bit green, you have to scrape it off. But normally get some... Uh, bananas and peanut butter and that's all right and water and i'm right i never ail out you know i never go down sick without i should do but i don't do do you document it as you go along you're making notes and keeping your journals no i, I have i have my diary as i say i put it my diary which at map at world and i always get a little and i put down where i sleep now my cousin derek pollard he, he's good on this machine doing stuff uh i've, I've sent photos back home all the time and videos now then I had a video camera for Africa and then part of Australia till I threw it away because uh, I had two video cameras and that when the second one went, wouldn't do, I thought, oh, bugger this, I threw it away. So then I had a normal camera that took old-fashioned photos and I had another camera that took slides, which I haven't looked at yet. And I did that part of Australia and New Zealand and then most of... South America, but then when I go into Paraguay, I bought a digital one and uh, for, for digital films. But all these other films are sent all back home, and I've only just looked at them. How Eric's got them sorted out, uh, Adam, Adam uh, developed. So we have to go through them. But I've got through Africa and New Zealand, I think there's 50 other. Yeah, there were 50 uh, uh, videos and about two hours a piece. Uh, and if anybody ever gets them, they look at. They won't go to bed. They just look at them because it's just me, videoing. I talk to myself a lot. I put I put my video camera on a rock and talk to myself, and uh, it's just normal. It's just me, no camera crew. I'm out because I'm miles from anywhere. There's just nothing where I am, uh, and and have that to do. But what I'm saying, Jim. So what I'll do this book. I'll do a book for 14 year. Then I'll do a book for every year. Otherwise, it'd be a hell of a big book. You'd have to have a trolley to cart it around on. <laughs> uh, because things that's happened to me every day, there's a bloody laugh. Lifetimes of adventure, for sure. Ian, what, what, would, what would your family and friends say has changed about you since you left 14 years ago and came back? I'm bald. That's it? Yeah. That's just a physical change. You haven't you haven't changed at all your your personality, your idea, your outlooks on life, your outlook on people, the world. Nothing. No, I'm always very good with people. Uh, no, I'm just bald now, but I, I, I'm not. I'm nearly bald, so I, I have all my hair cut off, so it looks as if it, there was some. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and now you got the biker look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They call me Baldrick. Yeah, no. So I'm all right. No, there's no, no, no different. And how about when you came back, what had changed for you? I mean, when you came back and you're saying about, you know, you've got buildings that need maintenance and you've got a farm there that needs work. Right. I'll tell you something now, Jim, I'll get you laughing. So for 14 years, I'm wandering around Africa, 
uh, Russia, Siberia, everybody, where, where you shouldn't go. If they, tell, if they say don't go, I'm off like a shot, I'll get there. I'll go there and have a look round. And there's never no trouble. Anyway, I've come back home, 14 years, no trouble. Sweeping me a barn out, loft, you know, where you put A up top. It was like 15 years since I trod on it. And I'm sweeping it out, a bloody floor gave way, and I fell through. <laughs> Straight to the bloody floor. Bugger me. So I'm in pain at the bottom, but I had my phone in my top pocket. So I rung I my lad up, Jason. Jason, get yourself up here bloody quick. I've just fallen through bloody roof. I'm on the floor and I'm in pain and I can't move my legs. I said, but don't tell your mother. First thing he bloody does, tell his mother. <laughs> she came flying in. Bloody, what's up with you? What's up with you? What's up with you? And then my daughter came and my, and my son came. I says, and so they rung for ambulance then. So ambulance come, um, two of them came and uh, looked at me and checking me all over and, they, and I were in pain, so they gave me morphine and then they started uh, checking me over. And uh, anyway, they said, oh no, we can't take him to Leeds in ambulance, it's too rough because I couldn't move my legs, I thought I'd done my back in. Anyway, so they sent for helicopter, so helicopter comes and picks me up out in the field just outside uh, and takes me to Leeds and then uh, checked me over, and I had a broken pelvis, broken shoulder, and some ribs gone. So I were in hospital there. Everything else were all right. So it was 14 years and no trouble, come home and fell through a bloody barn roof. Anyway, when I'm in hospital, after a few days, nurse came and said, oh, the BBC's here. Uh, can they come and interview you? They were on the helicopter that, uh, that fetched you in. I said, oh, of course you can, lass. So BBC come and says, oh, uh, we're on the helicopter. Can we use you for advertising purposes about this here uh, helicopter heroes? I says, I love, yeah, you can. Don't my name. And that's it. Then after a, a, a few days, they came back in again. She says, oh, we found out who you are now. She says, uh, you're famous. I said, well, not really. Uh, she says, well, look, when you, get, when you uh, come out of hospital, uh, can you give us a ring? And can we come up and do a story on you on BBC? Yes, of course you can, love. So they did do. But that's when they videoed it, or, or, or yeah, did film, and showed me new bike in barn. And about a week after, some buggers come up and stole it. The bike that I'd got ready to set off on in April, you see. So uh, they, they set off, so they pinched my bike. So I didn't, I didn't go in April. I finished up going to Isle of Man TT with my Africa twin that I'd just come back from uh, um, my long trip on with my crutches on back. And because uh, I couldn't walk right well, but I could manage to get on bike. Uh, parking were a bit dodgy. I, mean, I had to get my mate to come next to me and flip my side stand down so I could get off it. Uh, but I went to Isle of Man. So Ian, that, you, you just proved that it's more dangerous to be at home working than it is to be out riding your motorcycle around the world. I mean, that's like that. that's a given now. I mean, that that's that's uh, I didn't know that before. Oh yeah, yeah, you're a lot more dangerous at home where you are. <laughs> yeah, get on your bike and set <laughs> I, up. I can ride. <laughs> yeah. But what's the new bike that you're taking then? Same. It's a 1990 Africa Twin. So clearly, like the Africa Twin, there's no doubt about that. Um, you, no, you haven't thought of going with a newer bike? But they don't make one that's any good. 
Okay, I see. I was going to say that they don't make Africa Twins, but they make other bikes. But you don't think any other is going to be as good as that? It, it does sound amazing. I mean, Honda's known for its reliability. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it it does seem incredible. It sounds like you you really haven't had any any major trouble with it. No, I mean I, I'm a mechanic, and I used to do lots of welding, get Land Rovers ready for Africa. So when I wanted a bike, I looked at this, and I thought there's no to smash on it. It's all covered up. It's right. Uh, it, everything's tucked in neatly out at road uh, and I've looked at lots of bikes since there is no you see I go off road all the time most of these bikes that you see going round won't go over into wilderness and fall off them every day and still be alright mm-hmm. you know um, mine's just right it doesn't take, and also my bike there's only electro, ignition's electronic anybody who into mechanics can break down anywhere with my bike. And if I blow up men's a lawnmower or a tractor or a, a compressor or a, a boat, it can mend my bike. Most of these new bikes are too much electric on them. I, I do a lot of river crossings by myself. And uh, uh, I'll get lots of water on it. snowed all over everything. You know, it... Uh, but it's right, by, by, I'd go around world again on it. But without an hesitation. But... I know sometimes I want to make a film and I don't want them to uh, use another damn bike if I'm not around, if all happens to it. So I've left it there uh, so they can use it. Uh, tires, I mean, tires, I just use normal uh, 75% uh, road and 25% off. And they do perfect for me. Never had no trouble. I, I mean, as I say, I'm in wilderness nearly all the time, mud, snow, ice, everything. I don't care what time of year it is or what the conditions are. Uh, and I've no no trouble. So what we've learned here is we've learned uh, some key things. One, you're you're safer riding your motorcycle around the world than you are at home. That's a given. The other one yeah. is you buy a map after you leave the country that you've found your way through because if you don't know where you're going, you can't be lost. And the other one that I get from this is that when you're late, you don't have to worry anymore because you're already late. So at that point, you just relax. That's it. Did I miss anything? No, it hit nail on the head, Jim. There, yeah. That's so, the, so, so for those out there who who are definitely going to be considering doing something even better than what they've already done now, after listening to your story, what advice would you have for them? Right. Say you're going from Alaska, from Argentina to Alaska, uh, and you have as much time as me because you might not have as much time. Go to Argentina and do as say you can only manage six months at a at a time. Do your six months, put your bike into a reputable garage that's been there for a long time, tell everybody on Facebook and everybody around the world where you are and you're leaving your bike at such and such a garage because you're flying back home and then you're going to pick it up next year. But you tell everybody and that garage knows all the bloody world knows your bike's there so they can't sell it to dodgy. So come back home for six months or a year, go back out, Pick it up from there and then carry on again a bit till you run out of time. Don't try to do it all at once. And uh, and that's the best way. What about bike and gear? Um, what's your recommendations <laughs> on that? Uh, Oxfam shop or uh, stuff like that. No, in, when I was going over at, when, when I was going over at top, and it was like minus 20, 30 going over at top, we, we uh, uh, cold, all I do was have normal socks and put supermarket bags over my socks. Now, when it was right cold, minus 30 going up at top, I put three supermarket bags over my socks, 
Uh, my socks actually are wool socks uh, made out of merino wool from New Zealand. They're right good socks, but I wear them summer and winter and everything. And my motocross boots. And my gloves, I just have I'm two pair of them uh, uh, cotton-type working gloves. But I do admit sometimes I have to stop and put my hand on exhaust a bit. But I know when my hands are getting warm because my gloves start smoking. So I think, hell, hell, I'm, well, I'm here. And that's it. A normal jacket. When I was in New Zealand, I went to Hamilton uh, to an undergarage because Alaman TT run and I had withdrawal symptoms because I'd missed it. And I went inside and the owner's son <coughs> was in his sales office watching TT. And I said, is that TT to him? He says, aye, yes, it is. I said, can I watch it? He said, come on in. So I went in and uh, when it finished, he says, uh, how long have you had your leathers on? I said, well, I've had them all through Africa and, and, and uh, like Australia. And they were just like like a two-week-old roadkill cow wrap round there. They stunk. They were rotten. They, they were. He says, good, I think you need some new ones. He says, I tell you what, just hang on. And so he rang White's Wholesales up in Hamilton, and this were Honda guys down. And he says, go there and, and see them. They're waiting for you. So I went to White's Wholesalers in Hamilton, not far off. And uh, I said, uh, so-and-so sent me. He said, oh, yeah, come in. Oh, he said, we can tell who she sent me. Uh, sent you. So he said, take your jacket off and leave it out there. So, because it did stink. And uh, so they gave me a new Technic suit, and I still got it. And uh, it were eight good with that. And that were in 2003. I mean, it's knackered now. I mean, uh, it lets water in, and I've, I've put stuff on it that you seal tents with, and it still leaks, and all zips are beggared. It, it's knackered, really. All zips are buggered, and uh, I don't wear it no more now. But it doesn't smell. Not, well, not much, anyway. And uh, Not that you can tell. No. But I, I wear anything. What I've got now, Jim, is uh, motorbike stuff's right expensive. And I was working with a lad. I've been mending JCBs. And uh, he had a right good suit on, and he's been working on oil rigs up in Orkney's. And he had a full suit, uh, a jacket and, like, uh, pants on. And it, it's right waterproof. And if you fall in water, it blows itself up. And it's made in Sweden. He says, oh, no, lads on rigs have them up there. And they're full waterproof, even if you fall in sea. So I've got one of them now, and it even has a whistle on. <laughs> uh, so I haven't tested it yet. That's for my next trip, but it's a fairly big one. So that'll be all right. That was Ian Coates from our interview originally done in August 2015. Where's Ian now? Well, maybe it's time to start Googling. Stay with us. We've got more coming up after this short break. We've got Roseanne and Jonathan Hansen who have a deep passion for overlanding in all its forms. Stay with us.
Well, I really like soft bags on my bike for the style of riding that I do. I get into some pretty rough areas, and I like the advantages of soft luggage for that, in particular when I drop the bike. Um, but if you want to, want to look at some soft luggage that's a bit different from the pack, have a look at what Off-Grid Moto is doing. Off-Grid Moto designs and manufactures adventure-specific motorcycle luggage, and it's all done in the U.S. under the same roof. Now, they like that because it gives them the flexibility to change things up if they need to or do repairs. I mean, they're really customer-focused, and that was sort of one of the, the founding principles uh, for the business. It's sort of the, the advantage of that micro-operation, more customer-focused than mass production tends to be because they're right there. They're, you know, you're talking to the people who are making it, and if something comes up, they're quick to change, whereas if you do mass production, of course, it takes a long time. But Off-Grid Moto was formed just through passion for motorcycling and adventure, and the owner started the company because yeah, he's a bit of a gearhead and he loves motorcycling, so he wanted to make a company that made some great gear and just totally focused on the, the user experience, you know, their the customer experience. Anyway, drop by their website. Have a look at it. It's www.offgridmoto.com. Have a look at their Chadwick panniers. It's a 30 liter set of uh, really tough looking panniers. Now I haven't tried them myself, but from what I see and what I hear with this, these look like some really nice products and definitely worth you checking out. They use a 1000 denier fabric with a double layer of water resistant uh, coatings on the inside. And it's also in using the Molly system or the Molly system um, so that you can connect literally anything to them, other bags that you find etc. So drop by their website, check them out. And don't forget to mention Adventure Rider Radio. When you're talking to them or you're having a look at the thing, just let them know that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, www.offgridmoto.com. IMS products are the maker of well, loads of race gear. They've been doing it since 1976. Why is that notable? Well, because to survive and thrive in the racing scene for that long, you have to produce top quality gear. Without quality, customer service, and great designs, the company would never last. And IMS products has thrived. I mean, I, I just read that almost every major off-road champion in the last 15 years has used IMS products. That's pretty incredible. That says something in itself. And now they're making a complete line of ADV foot pegs for our adventure bikes. Now, I've said this before, but it's really important. Just adding wider pegs does not necessarily do it for your bike. It doesn't address the problem. It doesn't improve things. And I, that's a, I'm a big advocate for doing things to your bike that actually improve it. You know, especially when you're changing something that's, that's so important uh, for the operation of the bike, like your foot pegs. So to put on cheap foot pegs, it makes no sense to me. The pegs need to be designed properly. So they don't change the pivot point for your foot. They don't clog easy. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. It's pretty clear that IMS took this same approach when designing their ADV pegs as they do with their race gear. They start at ground zero and they build the best possible product for the application. 17 forecast certified stainless steel, a certified heat treating process, and the result are a set of foot pegs that should completely change your ride. I run with them as well, but we also get emails from listeners who say they bought them and they love them. Drop by their website, have a look at what you've been missing out till now, www.imsproducts.com. And of course, be sure to mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know it's working for them. Mm -hmm. 
Roseanne and Jonathan Hansen are the driving force behind Overland Expo, which you probably heard me talk about on the show because they advertise with us. But that's not why we have them on today. Uh, after getting to know them for a bit, we connected in a number of ways in background, life experience, but also their ethos for life. They believe in living life to the fullest. And for them, that means overland travel and exploration. I'm Roseanne Hansen. I'm the director of Overland Expo and from Tucson, Arizona, and that's where we still live. And I'm Jonathan Hansen. I'm sort of the husband of the director of the Overland Expo. Uh, and I'm a native of Tucson as, as well as Roseanne is. Roseanne and Jonathan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Where does the overlanding thing come in for the pair of you? Ah, well, I bought a Toyota Land Cruiser, an FJ40, in 1978. Uh, it was a, a 73 model. I bought it from the fellow who, who bought it new. So I immediately started exploring the Southwest and Mexico and that. It just came naturally. I'd been backpacking when I was a kid and uh, was used to being outdoors. I spent most of my time outdoors when I was young. So it was an easy transition to go from backpacking to traveling by vehicle. And I, I pretty much grew up doing it. My, my parents uh, had five kids, uh, and uh, the cheapest way to explore our beautiful southwest in Mexico was in a old uh, international travel hall. They'd pile all the kids in, and we'd go for a couple of weeks at a time exploring Mexico, especially what really stuck in my mind. So I grew up overlanding, we call it now. Back then, it was, you know, it was just traveling by, by truck and camping. Yeah, we, we just call it four wheeling too, and I, and I like the overlanding yeah. term much better. But but you're also uh, now you're you're a certified um, Land Rover driver trainer. I went through the certification course as did Jonathan, and we've both done tread lightly training. And Jonathan is a certified trainer through the uh, N- NPTC, a, a British organization as well. Uh, those focus on on safety and specific skills that you don't get just um, kind of driving around, exploring. These are skills that really prepare you a lot more for extended travel, for remote travel on your own. So that's why we went the extra mile, so to speak, and and got extra training, um, which anything from self-recovery to winching to uh, important things, you know, on, on motorcycles, you, you don't just get on the bike and, and, and ride. You've got to learn some specific skills. It's the same with, with four-wheel drive as well. And Roseanne, with you being into it from being a kid, and, and Jonathan, with you being, you know, the 1978 FJ40 that you bought, it hasn't worn out for you guys. I mean, because I know a lot of the people, I, I also started, Elizabeth and I started four-wheeling when we were uh, late teens, and most of the people that I knew back then that were into it, I mean, it was sort of a fad for them. They did it for a while and they and then they got out of it and they sort of move on with their lives. But you guys have been at it the whole time. Yes, definitely. Well, part of that is because of where we live. We're fortunate enough to, to live, have grown up in the West where there are new, obviously, endless opportunities to explore 
both the Western United States, Canada, Mexico. So it was easy to keep doing it because there is no end of possibilities for doing it. Still- and we both really became passionate about long-range travel. Uh, about one of our first big trips together was to drive to as far north as, as we could in Canada at the time to Inuvik. And then we paddled our sea kayaks down the Mackenzie River out to the Arctic Ocean and then flew back and then drove back home. And that was our first kind of taste of, of this this long road trips, uh, difficult travel on, on challenging roads, and just kind of went from there. What other sort of things have you done like that? Uh, well, I was um, I got sent to, to Africa for two months for Outside Magazine in 1999, and most of those trips or most of those uh, junkets there were either land over travel, land cruiser travel, or some walking safaris. So that just fueled the fire, and we've since visited and traveled in several more continents, uh, especially most recently Australia, where we have a vehicle. With both of you being writers and, and just like that assignment you just said, why would you want to do something like Overland Expo that might hold you down to one spot now for a while? Good point. <laughs> uh, it, it came about almost by accident. I was the founding editor of Overland Journal magazine. And while working there and trying to build up the magazine, Roseanne had the idea to organize an event that would help publicize it and publicize overland travel. So she organized the first overland expo in Prescott, Arizona in 2009. And it basically just exploded from there. The first one was successful and they've just become more successful since. And we added the Eastern show in 2014, I think. So that, that fills up our schedule. We don't want to do any more than that. We have people constantly asking us for a Midwest show or a Canada show or a Southeast show, and we still want to travel. So two is about all we can do and still maintain the freedom to get out and travel on our own. So Roseanne, were you, were you sort of shocked in 2009 with that first one? Did it sort of exceed your expectations? You know, it, it did. Uh, the, the reason we, we started it, as Jonathan said, was, was to help publicize our magazine at the time. Um, but also, we were trying to get the, the rebrand four-wheel drive and adventure motorcycling in North America to an audience that wasn't really aware of, of this different way to think about it. In North America, a lot of our our use of four-wheel drives is, is what they call wheeling, four-wheeling, and much of it involves pitting your vehicle and yourself against obstacles, where overlanding is about the travel. It's about the destination. It's about discovering things, uh, not about beating up your vehicle or the landscape or, or anything like that. It's, it's a, a mode of discovery. Same with the adventure motorcycling was really on the ascendancy at that time and was was really taking off again it's not dirt biking it's not going out to just ride around and around you are packing your motorcycle for extended travel uh, with luggage and camping gear and you're you're going exploring whether it's a hundred miles from home or ten thousand miles all the way down uh the the pan-american highway 
do you guys see overlanding sort of divided between you know, different modes of travel? And in particular, I'm going to ask about motorcycling, for instance, and vehicles. Is is there a, are, is there a division there? I, I think there is a division, and I don't want to make that sound like a bad thing. I think that have, having traveled both by motorcycle and four-wheel drive vehicle, typically the the modes of travel are so different that it's difficult for a group of riders and a group of four-wheel drive drivers to, to travel together. The logistics tend to be much harder than we, when you've just got one cohesive group of motorcyclists or one cohesive group of, of people in four-wheel drive vehicles. So that, that logistics bit is what separates them more than I think any particular philosophy. Certainly there are people who are snobs for bikes or, or snobs for four-wheel drive vehicles, but it's more it's more simple planning logistics than any than any philosophy that that creates that a bit of a divide. Yeah, we like we like to say it's about uh, our event is is an event for people who are nomads who are uh, passionate about travel and exploring, and whether you do so with motorcycle or four wheel drive, the mindset is the same. Uh, in fact, I'd say a small percentage, maybe about 15% of the people um, have both. And some will put a, a venture motorcycle on the back of a four-wheel drive sprinter van, for example, and you know, drive down to Mexico or Baja, set up a base camp, and then explore with their motorcycles. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because I, I see a lot of crossover there, you know, as far as get the idea of packing everything you need on your vehicle and getting your vehicle through an area, or like Jonathan said there, being prepared for anything that's going to happen to you along the way. There's a lot of similarities, and I can certainly see a lot of crossover with it. Yes. In fact, uh, a big change we made uh, last year in our training program is pretty exciting for both four-wheel drive and motorcycle. Uh, we brought all of our training, all of our motorcycle training in-house for the first time. Our, our four-wheel drive training had always been in-house with our own training team. And now we have our own motorcycle training team. And we developed, um, at, at the shows, we developed a, a specific road. And last year it debuted as the Africa Road. And we actually create this road through the training area. And it has different learning stations. And it's for both motorcycles and four-wheel drive. Um, they use it at different times, but for example, there's a mud section. There was a rockfall sec- section. So say you're riding a road in South America and as often happens up in the Andes, big rockfall. How do you get your bike over around it or your vehicle? Um, we have a border crossing that we actually build a, a, a guard house with the, uh, with the gate that raises up and down. And we have a team that runs people through a scenario on how to do border crossings. Do you have the right paperwork? What if your guards start shaking you down for a bribe? How do you deal with it? Um, it's really a fantastic program that's gotten a huge amount of, of positive feedback. So the thing where you're doing the border crossing, like you're, you're, people are coming up, they obviously know what they're doing. And you're, you're stopping them and you're just sort of running them through a, like a mock uh, border crossing with problems. Yep. Exactly. We, they do every time it's different just to keep it lively. Uh, one time they had a, uh, while well, the, the people were being occupied explaining their papers to the border crossing guard, we, we had uh, a kid who was attending the expo pretend to be a little uh, thieving villager who would come up and swipe stuff out of the side window of the vehicle while the, while the driver was preoccupied. So it gets quite realistic and really fun. 
Yeah, I think I think last year the um, uh, the guys who teach it uh, and women who teach it are ex-border agents from the UK, and so they really know what they're doing. Um, but they they started speaking in a you know a different language. They started confusing the the drivers, and I think they ended up hauling one of the drivers out and and arresting them and taking them off, leaving the spouse alone to cope with it. It was great. So just talking about the border crossing then, are there some some mistakes that could be avoided? Could you give like, you know, two or three examples of things that you do not do at a border crossing? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Don't don't lose your temper, number one. We found that personally and certainly it's backed up by the by our ex-customs uh, people who teach it is that the worst thing you can possibly do is is lose your temper. Even if your border crossing takes three days, as sometimes they do and in certain countries, you just have to be ready for it and stay calm and stay cheerful. And that will get you through quicker than, than losing your temper. Yep. Having your paperwork in order. They, uh, we do teach people how to, how to deal with that. Um, what resources to use, like, like the, the hub and places like that to, um, research what's going on and what you need. Uh, A lot, a lot of good tips. Anything else? Uh, I think, you know, from safety, the reason we, we have the kids steal thing out of things out of cars is because you're going to be distracted at, at a lot of these border crossings of, uh, attract people who take advantage of the fact that you've got to either leave your vehicle or you're talking to the border guards and, and you've left your rear window down or your back door unlocked. So, you know, I think that's another thing just to be cautious, not paranoid, because we certainly don't teach about, you know, we don't encourage people to be fearful and paranoid, just careful. Also having your vehicle, make sure your vehicle is, is uh, operating properly and has everything working on it. It has all the proper paperwork because if you are at a crossing where a guard is, might be tempted to shake you down or deny you access, having a taillight bulb out or the wrong registration or something like that is a, is a sure ticket to, to get trouble. So yeah, the, we were stuck uh, crossing into Kenya from Tanzania in a Land Rover. And we got, we got stymied just completely by not having a proper yellow caution symbol for the back tire of the vehicle was a required element in Kenya. And we couldn't buy one at the borders. So I can't even remember what we did. I think someone, no, someone sold us one at a highly exorbitant rate. Yep, that was it. <laughs> As is usually the way, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when you're stuck for something money, like that. Money, <laughs> money solves pretty much anything. Do you find it more hassle crossing through the border? Like, would it potentially be more hassle to you set yourself up for more crossing as a vehicle? But just because you have more there, you obviously look like you have a lot more money, et cetera, than you would on a motorcycle. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. A vehicle's got more places to hide contraband. There's just more stuff for for border guards who are interested in doing so to go through. And as of course, there are twice as many tail lights and headlight bulbs and other things like that can that can go wrong as well. You're a pretty compact package on a bike, and there's just less to mess with. I think. And then there's often those little requirements, like you said, the, the yellow sign to go on the spare tire or um, another one I just recently heard of that I hadn't heard before was the requirement in some places in Africa to have a fire extinguisher for your vehicle, even a scooter. Yeah, which, of course, is a good idea anyway. But, yeah, you need to know those things. And that's where uh, a resource like the hub is invaluable because there are people there who are literally any border crossing you can name someone on the hub has probably done it within the last week and knows exactly what the conditions are at the moment. 
Yeah, the Hub uh, Horizons Unlimited uh, is what you're referring to, just for those who don't know. Yeah, yeah fantastic resource. The people that you have to, to come and teach at Overland Expo, I'm sort of curious, where, where do these people come from? Oh, yeah, good question. All over the world, we have uh, 140 instructors around, 140, 150. It's different each show. And our core training team that works specifically on our motorcycle and technical driving section uh, is another uh, 30 people. And they come from Wales, Scotland, the UK in general, uh, Europe, uh, and then the rest of the instructors who teach less technical classes. We've had them from Australia, South Africa, India, um, multiple countries in South America. Uh, so all over the world. Are these people that are traveling or are they coming just for that show? Uh, many of them come just to be part of our teaching team. And many of them return every year with, with new class ideas um, or backed by popular demand. There's a lot of classes that, that we offer over and over. Uh, we, we do about 40 five percent or so new classes each time and are you guys teaching as well we do yes we both teach yeah what do you teach i'm curious uh i i usually teach uh winching class i teach uh winchless recovery class i teach a very extensive tire repair class Uh, i've taught classes on building toolkits uh, those are the main ones I cover. And I've done uh, a lot of our slideshows, our trip programs. We do our own videography and, and do uh, our, our own uh, media for slideshows. And I've taught, uh, gosh, uh, writing classes. Uh, I do recently started teaching a class in, for uh, art for people who want to do uh in the field watercolor for their journals and, and keeping journals for their travels. Where, what do you guys see in your, in your future sort of down the road? Where do you think all this is going or where do you plan to go? I guess. Well, that's a good question. At this point, we're, we're planning on growing better, not necessarily bigger. So every year we, we improve things. That's our, our near future. Jonathan and I will always continue traveling. Uh, We are just really, really blessed that we can have this amazing business that not only allows us to travel, but it's about travel. And the people we can surround ourselves with are similar in spirit. And it's kind of our chosen family. Uh, We look forward to these shows inordinately, really. We are loners. We are not social people. So it's very strange that we look forward to you know, seeing 12,000 people, but we do. We, there are people here that, that we consider life, lifetime friends, real chosen family. It's funny that you say you guys are loners, but you're doing something that, yeah, that's hugely social to put, to put on the show. I mean, even, even being writers, I mean, you got to be networking all the time. So do you find yourself, you're, you're pushing yourself sort of to do, to do those sorts of things? Hmm. You know, I think, you know, for the two or three weeks that, that we are intensely involved with all these people, uh, then it then it go then we all leave and we all go back to doing our, our lunar activities. I, I would say 
uh, no, it's not hard. Uh, we only do it twice a year, though. <laughs> and otherwise, I think a lot of the people who work for us and, and come to the show would call themselves loners as well. After all, it's about independent, self-directed travel. These are people who are choosing to buy a $5,000 guided trip. These are people who want to outfit their own motorcycle, outfit their own vehicle, and go off on their own. You know, we, we used to talk a lot about uh, defining adventure, and I'm sort of curious because of what you guys do in your history and everything, how you guys define adventure. And I know it's sort of an overused term nowadays and everything. I still love the word myself. But the idea of it, what do you guys picture adventure as? Uh, I, we, we think of adventure as the, the definition of adventure as a highly personal term because it's different for everyone. Uh, I, my definition would be completely different from another person's. My limits might be different from another person's. The things that I would think would be crazy to do, someone else might not think would be crazy to do. So it's about pushing personal limits, and those those are different for, for, for each person. For example, we have a very dear friend, uh, a woman who uh, a couple of years ago drove around the world with her boyfriend. They crossed Europe and Asia in a Peugeot, a diesel Peugeot station wagon that that they bought for 200 pounds in England. And that trip, by her own admission, pushed her beyond her limits. She she was desperate to go home at times, uh, had a very hard time doing it, was glad she did it, but it was very hard. To me, that sounds like a ball to, to, to cross two continents in a 200-pound vehicle. That just sounds like. On the, other, on the other hand, when this woman was 22 years old, she left her Midwestern postcard Cornhusker corn town on her own and moved to Los Angeles by herself. Wait. <laughs> That's way beyond my definition. That's adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't sure. do it in a million years, no way. Yeah, that's so, right. So it's, so it's all personal. How about you, Roseanne? Do you have a different opinion? No, I, I would agree with that. We run into this a lot. And one of the, we run into this idea of what is adventure. And you, you can see it at the show, especially at happy hours. You know, people will be like talking about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be going on this trip to this far off amazing place and and maybe the person standing next to them might feel like well you have to go long distances to foreign countries and cross many borders for it to be a true adventure well maybe not what we like to say is is it's it's your own pushing your own boundaries maybe for that person who's listening and being a little jealous of that wild adventure in foreign lands maybe they've never left their hometown and here they are, you know, reaching out and just learning how to camp, learning how to go uh, travel on your own for a couple hundred miles. That's a huge adventure for that person. Um, my One of my favorite stories from Overland Expo was a couple of years ago. Uh, I got a call from a, a young man. And I was very pleased that he actually called me to ask me this. He had met a very adventurous young woman who he wanted to go with on this adventure she was having uh, driving a vehicle down into Mexico and into Central America. And he wanted to talk to me because 
he had never camped and he had no idea how to even go to the bathroom outdoors. And mm. he specifically asked me if we taught classes in personal hygiene outdoors. And we do. You do. You have that. There's a book out. Um, um, I remember the first one I saw, I think it's called How to Shit in the Woods by Kathleen Meyer, is it? Have you ever heard of that book? It is. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I always thought that was funny because I come from an outdoors background, so it's never been even a thought process. But I, when I saw that book, I realized that I guess if you don't do it, obviously, you don't know how to do it. Of course. So you teach a class. We, we teach a class and we have a really strong rule at the show. And that is that we really don't tolerate people making fun of others experiences or levels of experiences we don't make fun of of, hey if you choose to have a a very inexpensive vehicle with nothing bolted onto it or or a a very simple motorcycle um, that's your choice or you want that bmw with every single solitary accessory and heated grips and heated seat and, and, and things that plug in and and fabulous luggage that's your choice too and it's all fantastic nobody is right or wrong and we really push that so yeah if someone comes and they don't know how to how to go to the bathroom outdoors great we'll show you how (laughs) i I don't know if i should delve more into this because now you've got me curious exactly how this program works but i guess somebody if they want if they're interested they can they can go to one of the shows and, and check it out roseanne jonathan thank you very much it was great to talk to you (laughs) It was really fun. Thank you. And of course, that was Jonathan and Roseanne Hansen. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. If you drop by our website, you can check out all of our episodes for free. They're all there to download. We also have our show notes, which have the links and the different things we've discussed in here, some photographs, things like that. But more importantly, as of January, we've started doing transcripts. So you can actually read the program that you just heard. Or if you want to go back and check something, find something we said, you can go back and have a look at it there. Just check out the show notes for each episode. Also, we have our show ARR Raw comes out once a month. I'd encourage you to go check that out. And if you like it, subscribe. You need to subscribe separately. It's a separate show from this. However, it's on our website at www.adventureriderradio.com. Now, if you love what we're doing here, this is built on a model of advertising and listener support, which we get. And listener support is what helps drive the show. So drop by the website and click on the support button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And uh, the patron setup that 
we have here, encouraged by our listeners, people like you, it's set up so that you can go on and do a monthly pledge. So any amount at all, a monthly pledge, and then it's done automatically each month. And that's fantastic. The more we get of that, the better for the show because it makes it so we don't have to worry about chasing other things down. We can work on producing content for you, which is what we love to do. That's what we love doing here, Elizabeth and I. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 